Okay, so first, uh, we'd like to present ourselves. We are students for the National School of Architecture of Versailles. Uh, so it's in France. We're working on, uh, on a project called uh, Density and Metropolis um, with Klaus Doric and Andreas Koffler. Uh, so uh, I am Karim, uh, so Ulysse, Sushian, Matteo. Um, we are very pleased to have you, to have an expert in urban data and urban uh, and, uh, data visualizations. So uh, Jens von Bergman, I'm sorry if, I'm, if, I, if I pronounced it uh, incorrectly. Uh, so you hold an undergraduate degrees uh, in uh, physics, computer science, and PhD in mathematics. Uh, you taught for several, several years at the University of Calgary, University of Notre Dame, and Michigan State of University before founding Mountain Math, which was by the way, uh, very um, inspiration to us. Uh, it's uh, our primary, uh, primarily the, the, the source of information that we got uh, on Vancouver. Um, so yeah, uh, mouth and math uh, to work on your passion of data uh, analytics and visualization. Uh, you use an innovative approach to help more people interested in cities to get information and uh, easily, easily represents data through, through maps and 3Ds. Um, so thank you very much for this opportunity and we, uh, we will start with the first question. Okay. Hi, Jens. Can you talk about yourself and about Mountain Mesh? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, hello, everybody. Good to meet everybody here. Hi. Hi. Um, so uh, yeah. So really mountain math um, started out as um, sort of an idea where um, I realized that there's a lot of lack, I think of easily accessible data, not necessarily a lack of data, but just a lack of easily accessible data that can help inform um, where we've come from, where we're going, like where we're at in terms of um, you know, cities in Canada uh, in particular, Vancouver. So I live in Vancouver. Um, so that's, um, I guess I've been watching what's been happening here. We've, um, I don't know if you've heard about it, but we've had, we have a housing crisis <laughs> in Vancouver, which manifests itself in many different ways. And um, these things are complex. Um, usually there are no easy, quick answers. And um, so I started to look through data and um, realized really how difficult it is to um, just see, easily view or access some of this data. And um, so Mountain Math kind of started this way um, along the data route. Um, really, it came with census data. So in Canada, we have a census every five years. The quality is really good. We have very high response rates. And um, so it's an enormous amount of data that's being collected but uh, very hard to access. So um, at some point I looked at this and I have a bit of a software background. Um, so the way I think of it often is, well, this, this should be easy. We should just be able to, to see census data easily, um, but we weren't in Canada. And so I build sort of a platform called Census Mapper. Um, so censusmapper.ca, it's uh, really just a very simple website, but what it allows you to do is to take data from, I 
think by now I've imported data for five different censuses. So back to 1996, does it make maybe, or maybe six censuses. And um, basically any census variable you can map very easily. And you can also map a combination of variables. So you can kind of just write down a function of census variables and map it to map more complex relationships. And that's immediate and Canada wide. And so that gives an idea of um, really how to understand um, where we are or where we were at different points of time and how things have changed over time. And sort of having this layer of demographic, very rich demographic data is a, is a really good baseline to see how cities change, how countries change or regions and uh, where things go. And on the other hand of side of things, like when it comes to Vancouver, there we have also you know, a lot more granular data of, of other types of data sources that we might not have available Canada-wide. So I've built out um, sort of a, you know, something that looks at housing-related data um, that is more specific to Vancouver to try and visualize where have home prices gone, um, where have, um, you know, how has maybe density affected these things. And that's something that's um, more specific to city of Vancouver and probably also more constrained by data availability. So there's a lot of focus on this kind of stuff on home prices, uh, where personally I feel what's much more important is things like rents, um, but we just don't have much data on this. And so that makes a lot of these things a, lo a lot more complicated. But that's roughly the story of where the data part behind mountain math came from. And um, partially I just started this out of interest, but um, it turns out a lot of other people were interested in this too. And um, based on this, um, now what I'm doing is a lot of data analysis um, where maybe other um, parts of government um, or um, organizations that want to understand things better than come to me and ask me questions and um, the maps and um, sort of these live maps that are great to explore things. Um, they're a lot of fun, but uh, maps aren't analysis. So at some point um, you look at these things and you start to have more and more questions. And at some point you really actually need to do analysis to, to answer these. So that's mostly what I'm doing these days. Okay. Okay. Nice. Okay, thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, just um, to talk about more about yourself, uh, what is your, the way you, you arrive to, to work on this, what were your studies, for, for instance, or what is uh, the most interesting thing you, you were uh, in when you were students, maybe? You can explain it to the people who are listening to us, maybe. My background before I was doing this was very different. So when I was okay. a student, <laughs> when I was in university and doing things, I was doing physics and mathematics. I'm not really using any of this right now, other than, um, of course, when I do analysis, it does require some basic, but very basic mathematics, which um, I guess is, or in statistics, which statistics I haven't really learned, um, but it's fairly easy for me to pick up. So that helps. So, um, so from my background and from when I was a student, um, it, it's really quite different. Um, other than that, I always had broad interests. What are exciting things? Um, I'm sort of in a lucky position that um, when I decide what kind of projects to work on, I typically only work on things that I'm excited about. 
So some things, of course, are more fun than others. Um, and um, what I love is if there's something that has like a lot of quirks, like a lot of weird rules, and that's policy relevant. So one fun project was um, looking at, so Nova Scotia, it's a province in Canada, and they have a funny rule about property taxes. So their property taxes system is somewhat similar to California's Proposition 13. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the idea there is that um, incumbents or people that have owned property for longer times pay lower property taxes than newcomers. And, uh, but um, so if you, if you buy your home and then your home, property taxes are, are tied to home values or assessments of home values. And, um, but what's happening there is that they cap the increase on your home value that is used for taxation. So it doesn't, um, if the market goes up faster than say 2%, your property taxes won't go up the same way. Yeah. Okay. So the newcomers that come in, they pay higher property taxes, but you won't. But then it's kind of funny. If you rent out your home, then you lose that status and it resets. Except if it's a single family home, then if you rent it out, you can get to keep that status. But if it's an apartment, a condo in an apartment that you rent out, then you lose that. So it has a lot of different quirks that um, favor some people, some forms of housing and not others. And sort of that was an interesting analysis to see how does it affect different people, who pays more, who benefits, who doesn't. And then to visualize something like this on a big map where people can go onto their property and check, why does my neighbor pay more than me? Yeah. <laughs> so those kind of projects I really like because they're quirky for the rules and they're policy relevant because there was some move to get rid of this, which hasn't happened, um, but might still happen in the future. I think it would be good to get rid of it, but. Um, looking at the analysis I did, I don't think it's, um, I mean, it, it favors rich homeowners and um, it hurts renters. Um, so I don't think it's a very um, good policy, but um, this is kind of fun. I really like this kind of stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, well, the interview will be in uh, two or three parts uh, about the time we have uh, in the end, but um, in the first part of this interview, we, are to, we will talk about um, the data and the city in global uh, thought. And then we will talk about Vancouver and the uh, three questions about uh, the city. And to, to begin the, this, this part, uh, I would like to ask if you, you usually have clients, you talk about, uh, uh, for, in, for instance, the, the government, but um, have you got some clients, uh, private clients? Or how do you work with the people who are interested in your work? So um, most of the work I do is with some level of government, be it okay. city, province, or federal. Um, and mostly that's because I'm more interested in policy type things than doing something. I think the other part is... Um, you know, there's also some maybe private clients, sometimes more like nonprofits. I've worked with bike share companies. So that's one option. Um, it's just generally I'm interested sort of in, in, in the intersection of housing, demographics, and transportation. And that kind of narrows yeah, okay. it down. And, and it's, it's more a policy type of um, um, things. So when it comes to other private sector, um, 
let's see, sometimes what I've done is um, there's certain software products that I've used. Um, simple things might be like a web scraper that scrapes rental listings. It's again, a data source that's not easily available. It's a bit of a gray zone. Scraping is you know, not really legal, not really illegal. Um, so it's hard to do something with the data. But um, there are people very interested, of course, in understanding the rental market. Um, so it's something where I can't go and sell them data because the data itself is not, it, it's, it's a funny, funny thing. It's in this legal gray zone, but I can sell them the software to scrape it and they can do that themselves. Then it's not my problem. Yeah, okay. So those are things um, where um, I've interfaced with the private sector, but usually it's, it's public sector or maybe organizations okay. like Bike Share or things like this. Okay. Um, and just a quick question about this. Uh, do you work um, sometimes with um, urban planners or architects to discuss what are the, the main issues or to, to see, or it's just about uh, data and uh, making the, this work, in fact? No, I, I talk a lot with planners, architects, yeah. economists. Um, simply, um, data is great, but um, you really need to understand the context, how this fits in, how the data is derived, but also um, some theory to ground it in to make it useful. And uh, none of this is my background. So I'm yeah. not an architect, not a planner, not an economist. Um, so I rely very heavily on interfacing and talking with people in these sectors to, to really understand how, you know, what does these data that I can see, um, you know, mean in the real world? Um, you can't just take a pure data view and then try to understand everything. It, um, it doesn't work that way. So, yeah. and communications, I rely very heavily. Uh, sometimes there are projects where I work with other ones. I've worked, for example, with an architect um, friend of mine here. He's a professor at, at UBC. We did a project together on teardowns in Vancouver. So um, what we have is we have zoning that uh, mandates single family homes. And um, because of the, the pressures on the housing market, um, prices go up a lot. So people are willing to pay a lot of money for a single family home that if you look at it from a building perspective is really worth nothing. And what that leads to is that people, when they're willing to spend $2 million on a, on a home, but the home is really, when you look at it, it's, it's a glorified shed. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it has nothing about it says 2 million other than the location where it is. Um, yeah. People will look at it and you're not gonna live in a home that's sort of worth $50,000 if you spend 2 million. Hmm. So what you're gonna do is you're probably gonna tear down and build something much nicer. Yeah. Ideally, of course, um, when we think about this um, from a perspective of building something new, you might, you know, generally you would think maybe 20% of the money you want to put down is the land and the rest is the building. But with a $2 million home and all you're allowed to, $2 million piece of land and all you're allowed to do is build a single family home, you can't do that. I mean, mm. you, you, you have to mix diamonds into the concrete or um, like have bathtubs <laughs> out of solid gold. I don't know. It, it's, it's impossible, right? Yeah. So you can build a $2 million home on it and that's already stretching it like $2 million for a single family home. We get that sometimes, 
usually it's more like 1 million um, what people do. So basically construction type, you go out of concrete maybe, um, and you put lots of fancy stuff and bells and whistles on it, but spending a million dollars on just one house is hard. Okay. I mean, you can do it, but it's kind of the thing, um, but it happens here, right? And so, yeah. it, but what happens is there's a sort of a cycle that happens. People do this, but the land values, essentially what the, the, the you know, what people are willing to pay extra for the location goes up so fast and building values depreciate. At some point, there's a cycle where you get another teardown and another teardown. And um, that has problems for many reasons. And so this architect friend and I looked at it. We analyzed it, tried to predict teardowns. We build a predictor. Um, what's the probability of buildings getting torn down? Then we um, tried to estimate the life cycle carbon impact of this by looking at embodied, uh, but also we have better energy standards for, for operating energy and just try to understand what's the carbon impact of this cycle. And um, so we have a, a, like a little data story on it and, um, and a paper. So that's an example of where I worked with an architect. Okay, but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you talked about uh, a website you made uh, earlier, um, and usually, how how does it takes uh, how long does it takes to make a, a data analysis of a city and a visualization after a visualization project after that? Uh, how long does it takes uh, to do all this? Um, yeah, so that. Uh, it sort of depends. One good thing is that the technology to do these is getting easier and easier. Um, but it also depends on your familiarity with these technologies. So if you yeah, make a web map nowadays, it, you can go from, you know, very fast matter of, you know, a couple of hours, you just um, assemble the data, clean it a bit to what you want and put out a quick web map. So that can be very fast. Um, depending on the tools you're using. Um, if you build something more complex like Census Mapper, it definitely takes more time. It took me probably two months to build this because it requires a, you know, a special uh, flow of data that is not standard in order to make it um, fast and um, easily available for all of Canada. Um, but usually if you're looking more at the city level, things go pretty fast because you don't have to worry about um, you know, different levels of detail. You just ship all the data all at once. So you don't need a server or anything to um, have map tiles. It, it makes things very simple. And because technology is advancing so fast, even if it's, I don't know, 10 gigabytes of data, it doesn't, uh, 10 megabytes of data, it doesn't really matter. You just ship it all into the browser, draw it, and um, it, it the technology is so good that you don't really have to worry about much stuff and that you can do pretty fast. If you want interactivity, usually that requires some more work to put it in by hand often to make yeah. these things work. But anywhere from like an hour to an afternoon, maybe if it's something that you want to really polish off, it takes two days. Okay. Um, and so since uh, 20 minutes, we are talking about data. And the main question uh, we, we can ask is, uh, how do you collect data for your work? Yeah, so, okay. So there's a whole variety of, of um, things. So one thing is, um, I like Canada-wide data, country-wide data, 
because of course it, it scales much easily work to acquire it and, and do it it's it's all the same and suddenly i can look at the entire country and in canada we have some very good data like the census every five years but we also have more regular tables that look at economic data demographic data other social data that gets updated monthly but maybe not on such fine geographies so um in order to work with this um for analysis, usually I work in R, which is a statistical um, software that is free and open source. And um, I have sort of packages um, in R, which basically bundles um, functionality. And I have some that um, tie into all these data sources. And so that makes it very easy for me to pull in the data as I need it and work with it. Um, and the good thing is it's, it's open data. Um, so other people can use those same ones too. Um, and so it makes it very easy to um, start to get that data. Um, other data sources, when it's city level, um, again, the process is very similar to get the data. So I usually work in a framework where I want things to be reproducible. So when I get data, I don't go to a website and click on it and download it and then open a file. Uh, what I do is I, I go to the website and I see where's the link to the data and then I grab that and then I put that into a code in R or in Python, depending on what I do. And um, then I load the data in there because that way, if I want to come back in a month and I'd, you know, or if the data updates, I just hit this button again and it runs through and I get the new version of the data. Okay. So my process of getting the data is always um, trying to do it in a um, sort of, you know, in, in code, so to speak, in, in, a, in, a, in R or in Python scripted so that um, also if I suddenly work with somebody else on it, I just give them my script and they run it. And I don't have to give them the data because it gets the data automatically. Yeah. So I find that extremely useful. Also, it's something where, um, you know, if somebody else asked, what did you do there? How did you do this? I just say, oh, here. Um, so it's, it's transparent, it's reproducible. And um, the big thing for me is it's adaptable. If I go in and I want to do something similar, a similar analysis, maybe a different data source or maybe a different type of analysis, I can just adapt what I did before. And so the next time around it's much faster okay so in terms of there are other data sources where i've more creative sometimes there's web scraping um and um and their data I, I like to i try always to work as much as possible with open data but sometimes i can't and for certain data projects either the client might have data that they give me that i can work on and that i can share publicly mm -hmm. yeah um or i do like the rent um, Craigslist listings, rental listings, where I look at it, where um, I might scrape it for some purpose and analysis, but I can't really um, share the data source. So that happens too. Okay. Um, you talked about uh, your software you were using for, for the project. Um, are you using other software for modelization or like uh, 3D softwares and everything? Yeah. So, um, my workhorse for analysis really is, is R, um, the, yeah. the software statistical package. Um, for um, Sometimes I use Python. It just 
works yeah. better in certain instances. Um, but um, I rarely use kind of desktop GIS software. Okay. I, I have like a version of QGIS on my computer, but I basically never open it. Um, what I do for um, visualization purposes, when I make uh, web maps, 3D things, there I do um, you know, use platforms like Mapbox, um, DeckGL, which is Uber's visualization engine, which is really nice for data visualizations. And, and those require um, usually some work in JavaScript, which is a sort of um, the, the language that runs in your browser when you look at it. So a lot of these 3D visualizations, um, I think of these as communication tools that um, where I can share and communicate results and those run in your browser and allow you to spin things around and look and zoom. And um, these are great tools. Um, and sometimes they require a bit of adjusting and that would be done in JavaScript usually. Okay. Um, a, a quick question about uh, the undercurrent background of data development. Um, will it become a new trend for data science disciplines? Uh, to intervene in urban planning, do you think? Mm. I don't know. I think um, urban planning is trying to use a lot more data. But it's always a problem when you have sort of two fields. You can't learn everything, right? You can't go to school for planning and then you go to school for data science and then you think, oh, I need some economics too. So you go to school for economics. You, it's just you can't reasonably expect people to do this. Yeah. So sometimes you get people of mixed backgrounds, but what you need is you need still need to be able to interface, right? So what that means for me is I need to learn about planning enough that I can talk to the planners at least, because if I can't really talk to the planners and the planners don't really understand the data, you know, we can say, oh, can you do this? And I said, yeah, I can do this, but then I deliver something that maybe isn't quite right. Yeah. Okay. Or also the planners don't really know what, what could be done with the data. And I don't really know what the planners are interested in. And mm -hmm. so there needs to be enough overlap. Um, so I think for this to work, and I think planners are very interested in using urban data more as our economists. And so um, there needs to be um, definitely some kind of training on the planner side to understand these data processes better to be able to interface. I don't think they need to do everything themselves, but um, in theory, they need to have a deep enough background so that there can be good communication. And the same, of course, for data science people to kind of acquire some of that subject matter knowledge. Yeah, okay, of course. Um, and so uh, to, to go uh, further in this subject, uh, what are the, the challenge or the impact uh, that brings the that brings this uh, data sciences uh, to the traditional urban planning uh, discipline in universities? Hmm. Yeah, I don't really know because I don't teach in universities. So yeah. um, I have a hard time. But I think whenever you see something new like this coming in, it's hard because the professors probably aren't that familiar with it. Hmm. So they can't teach it that way. Um, there are always going to be some that are very um, that, that will learn and pick this up. I think it's mostly the students and the new generation um, that will um, try these things out, go into those skills and, and bring this up. So 
<clears throat> I think how, how does this change? How does data start to enter more and more? Um, I think it's mostly the students that hopefully will um, go get some more background in data science or in geography. And I know planners yeah. take classes in geography, but geography is kind of old fashioned too that way and that they're often stuck, what I would call stuck in a desktop environment, like where yeah, you're okay. in ArcGIS or QGIS and you do something, um, which is great, but, um, and it, it teaches you something, but in, in a practical world, it takes so much time to do something in it. And um, the bigger the data gets, the, the harder it is to do something that um, you can build on, right? You lose, you lose the ability to go and take an analysis you've done before and just make slight changes very fast. Yeah. That's so right. if I do something in Census Mapper and I look at Vancouver and I try to understand how Vancouver has changed over time, and then a friend in Toronto calls me and saying, hey, how about Toronto? It literally just takes, um, you know, I changed two lines of code where saying, do the same thing just for Toronto. <laughs> and that's it. And, um, or maybe I look at the change in the number of children in Vancouver. And then somebody says, well, how about seniors? And I just change one little thing and saying, hey, okay, same thing, same question, just look for seniors. And I just make that one small change and I hit a button and that's it. And it's like um, 30 seconds later, I know the answer and I have some nice maps and everything. <laughs> so, so this kind of thing is just um, the type of speed and depth and analysis you just can't get in a desktop JS software. Okay, uh, just uh, so you think that it could be a great idea to, to add this, this question to the urban planning curriculum or it could be great to have uh, more of this uh, separated uh, sciences well i think for one is not all urban planners will probably need the data background mm. um, and it's just not realistic yeah. to say oh you should also learn this um, so yeah, people okay. are going to specialize in different ways but um, having more urban planners to to have these kind of skills and i can see this for um, people that are working in planning right now that these data skills are becoming increasingly important Right. Every bigger city has, um, they also have a data department right, yeah. that works with data. And then they have planners that try to interface with them. And there's a lot of friction and it's difficult, right? And so you can definitely see that planners that have these kind of skills, um, you know, it's very useful. Okay. Um, so we are at the end of this first part about your work and how you use uh, the data. And so now we are going to talk about more about Vancouver and uh, the work you make here. Uh, and maybe if, you are, if we have time, we will talk about the project we are making uh, in this city with our school. Sure. So you already talked a lot about uh, different things you, you learn on Vancouver and the uh, population, the question of the children. But maybe one question before going into some other more uh, complex uh, could be what was the most uh, interesting uh, discover discoveries you made on Vancouver with this analysis of data and things like that? Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, the most interesting, I don't know. Um, of course, one thing that was interesting to me two years ago probably is boring to me now. So, 
<laughs> at some point it's it's interesting it's a new discovery but then it becomes old and stale um, once you uh, wrap your head around it i think that's that's very hard to say um generally what i'm really interested in is um i think of often we think of cities as being fairly static sort of you live in a place and you're there um, like one of the early discoveries looking through census data that really blew my mind was how often people move. So in the city of Vancouver, in a five-year period, you can check like in a census because we have it every five years, what share of the population lived at the same address five years ago, five years earlier. So that means they have moved in between. They might've moved several times. And, you know, some people might have moved away and come back to the same address. You know, maybe they went off to university in some other place and came back. So it's not perfect, but it gives you a really generally very good idea of how often people move. And it's almost half the population. Okay. Five years. (laughs) Of course, the city of Vancouver is a fairly small part in a bigger metro area. And um, especially in the central parts, you get much higher mobility. You get some areas where it's above 70%. That's what we saw with our, because we made an analysis on this part. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we've, we saw that there is a, a big uh, center of the city, which is really uh, with a dense uh, mesh of transport. And so maybe to go ahead on the question, uh, with all this information, uh, what kind of, which problem face this city, which are the big problems you can talk about? Yeah, so um, the way I like to think about it is I like to start from a problem and then try to figure out, is there data that can speak to that problem? And, And how good is the match? Because the data usually doesn't, quite answer that question you never get the perfect data but how good is the match can i somehow answer my actual question with the data i have and and sort of continue this way but um so usually i try to start from the problem that i want to solve and then go to the data but in reality sometimes data availability is a real problem so you you sometimes look at the other way and saying oh i have all this great data what problems can i solve with this i try to avoid going that way around but um, you know, sometimes you're just very constrained. But if I think again, from the problem perspective, what's the biggest problem that Vancouver is facing? I think right now, housing, housing availability and affordability is probably the biggest problem. There's just a lot of people that want to live in Vancouver and space is quite limited. Um, people just, we just don't have enough homes for those people. And that creates enormous pressures. But then these, um, you know, the, from the problem perspective, it exists at the metropolitan level, but also um, even more so at the city level. When you're at this, the city at the heart of the, the metropolitan area, um, the pressures are much higher. So if you ask anybody, um, do you want to move to Vancouver? Yeah, okay, I want to move to Vancouver. There's jobs. That's a nice city. Where in Vancouver do you want to live? Oh, I want to live in the city. The city is really where the jobs are, but it's also where the beaches are. It's, um, it's just an amazing city. And um, so if you think in terms of amenities, in terms of jobs, it's the city of Vancouver where people want to live. And you can see this in the prices and the rents, right? It's much cheaper to own or live further out than it is in the city center. And um, so, but how do we understand um, 
you know, where we should go? How does data help us solve this problem? That's a really tricky question because I'm not sure it does. Um, sort of, uh, we're in a funny way when it comes to thinking about cities and planning. Um, often the question is, well, um, from a planner perspective, we think about, well, where do people want to live? Do I actually, should I allow more things in this location? Is that where people want to live or somewhere else? And the economist would simply say, well, you know, just look at prices. That'll tell you. Look at rents. I mean, if rents are high, that's where people want to live. And um, the solution would be maybe to just allow more housing and pretty much everywhere. And um, it'll appear where it makes sense. That's how the market works. The planner will say, oh, no, 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 we can't do this. Or, you know, but if you do this, even if you follow this economist approach, the planner will say, well, but we'll need infrastructure. You know, uh, is there enough sewer capacity and how do we do those things? So in some sense, we still need to understand how this works and the data can help to some extent. I think we're often overthinking it. Um, you know, simple things like rents, they tell us quite well where people want to live. And, um, but the planners will still need to know, is there enough infrastructure? You know, there's a role for planning to play here. And so to continue on that, um, maybe one question, because I heard about uh, public transport infrastructure, maybe you could say which is a positive point you found uh, by Analysis Vancouver these few years, like the biggest uh, positive point of the city. Mm. What's the biggest positive point of the city? Um, Yeah, on the housing front, there's really not all that much there. Um, <laughs> but um, transportation-wise, um, I think we've made definitely some really um, positive moves. Uh, one is expanding, of course, of our um, um, subway uh, network or um, rail network. So here it's called SkyTrain. Uh, which um, often is underground. Sometimes it's an above ground sort of dedicated um, elevated um, um, railway. So, so transportation is, is crucial also in how it interplays with housing. Um, in, in many ways, what it does is it enlarges. So if you think about the pressures on the central area where people want to live close to jobs and, and amenities, that's quite restricted. Having rapid transit like this expands that area. And suddenly you have a lot more space that is close in time to and, and convenience to these amenities and jobs. So that greatly sort of distributes pressures more broadly. And it's, it's very important, right? And we know that it, you know, adding mobility is, is an important thing for cities, right? Cities survive because of, um, you, you have synergies when you have jobs and people and amenities in close proximity. And so improving your transport system like this brings more of those into proximity. So that's great. I mean, that's the whole reason cities really exist. Um, but on the other hand too, in the city of Vancouver in particular, we've had uh, great strides in terms of cycling infrastructure, just other ways to get around to make it much more convenient. So more separated cycling infrastructure, um, things like this, um, some of the public space that we have like the seawall, which is an almost continuous um, 
walking, cycling pathway that goes along our, um, just really all around our, um, um, the, the connection to the water in Vancouver, which is this great fractal boundary um, all around. It's, it's really exciting and, and fun and great. And in a similar vein, one thing that is quite positive too is if we look at growth, uh, especially in the city of Vancouver, um, we've added quite a few people over the last 20 years to the city and a lot of workers. But one thing that we haven't added is people that drive to work in a motor vehicle. So I think that's a really good achievement for the city of Vancouver that we're able to add a lot of workers, but we didn't add on net drivers. Yeah. Or very few drivers, really. Because if you look at just the geometry of cities, there are the, space constraints, not just in housing, but also in transportation. And um, cars just take a lot of space, right, for driving, for parking, in, in all these things. And, and this, these space constraints just means we can't do this. And um, finding ways for people to, to go into alternative modes, which means a really good frequent transit network, which is... Um, bus and subway and how they interplay, but also um, cycling, walking, bike share. And the city uh, has done a really good job on it. Region-wide, that's not quite true. So the further out you live, the, the harder it is to, to commute without a car, but at least for the central areas that we've done that. And that's great. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, and so maybe uh, to continue with the question of the car, we got a big question about like the climate change. Did uh, have you done any uh, data about this subject, or you're gonna you have planned to do some about this one? What's your opinion about that? Because we saw that the city of Vancouver is really into this question. So, right. So um, I don't have worked really closely with this. Um, I've sort of dabbled on the fringes. So Vancouver, of course, uh, climate change is something that affects every city and affects every city differently. Um, I mean, there's some common themes, I think, but um, like for the city of Vancouver, what that means is there's sort of two main risks that come with climate change. One is um, flooding. Yeah. And flooding really uh, for Vancouver comes in two ways. Uh, one is um, from, the, from the ocean. Right? We're on the Pacific Ocean. So you have sea level rise and you have higher, um, you know, sort of storm um, king tides, like when you have uh, wind conditions, high tide at all at the same time that push the water against the seawall. And at this stage, Vancouver is sort of putting out sandbags at certain areas every winter where um, there's some flood risk. It's, um, you know, there's of course planning that goes into new buildings. Um, to try and adapt to this, but it's sort of a process that is somewhat manageable and predictable. We kind of understand what to expect for this. The other part is uh, heat and fire. So we're getting heat waves. This summer we had a big heat wave in uh, British Columbia, and that's a problem, and uh, fire risk too. So our sort of urban forests or just forests further out that burn and where um, we end up with smog and went Vancouver for a week or two even. And so this has happened in the last couple of years and it's definitely, it's, it's, we're feeling it. So it's not just what happens right within Vancouver. Oh, and I forgot for the flood risk, of course, the other part is the rivers. So um, heavy rains that we're getting, um, we have these rivers coming through and um, there we have an interplay again with um, tides and um, the overall 
seawater levels. So the rivers do rise. Um, you know, they're, they're actually even 50 kilometers up, the rivers are still tidal. The impacts of tides um, do impact the rivers there. And then you get flooding from rain and snow melt. And so a little outside of Vancouver, we had huge floods this summer, uh, last, this past summer too. So, so these are the two threats there. But um, the other part of course is um, climate change is global. And um, if we think about things like climate refugees, Vancouver, again, even though we have our challenges, is still a great place to be. It's fairly northern latitude. Um, it's a nice place to live. And so um, many people in other places of the world might you know, continue to look at Vancouver as a place to move to. Yeah, for sure. And uh, uh, normally we got a question about the do you think that the, the, the city claims uh, the question of the ecological uh, approach and things like that? But I think, with all you said, uh, Vancouver is definitely going into this question and taking into account the big difference it will make in 10 or 20 years. And so maybe one last question about this subject could be how you could imagine to, to, um, to make data or translate it into data in the future. Like uh, which parts of this uh, question of the climate change city you could adapt in data? Mm. I think one part really going forward, and the city is of course working on this too, is trying to think of how can we lower the carbon footprint of the population in the city? So not just how climate change affects us, how do we affect climate change, right? So that's sort of the other side of that equation. And there, in the city of Vancouver, we do things like we have building codes that focus on operational um, um, energy consumption, right? So to make sure that on the, the operational side of things, carbon is low. So that's a fairly easy thing to do because it's fairly easy to account for carbon on this sort of operational thing. But I think we need to change that more from a systems and, and life cycle perspective. So some of that is we need to really start to put embodied carbon into this equation, um, which thinks about how do we build things. Um, and um, in many ways in Vancouver, the way we grow is we keep low density neighborhoods, low density and build towers on um, sort of fairly small footprints or locations that we do designate for high density. And those tend to be um, <clears throat> mostly concrete towers and it's not necessarily the best um, way to to grow a carbon low carbon society and so we need to have more serious thinking about this and of course also tie in transportation so location really matters of where we live and think of this from a more regional perspective so um, has transportation um, embodied carbon and operation so really as a society as we live here um, how do we lower that footprint in a systematic way? And I think we're lacking a lot of these data sources to integrate them. It's still very insular, right? So we think about operational energy, we know how to do this now. Um, if we think about things like the um, overall impact of embodied carbon, we're still not good at this at all. And um, so this is not part of our accounting. And so we need an, a, a way to combine these data sources and try to really have a, a clearer picture of how this all comes together and, and what's the best way forward that also meets our other um, priorities. 
Well, um, that's really nice. Thanks a lot for all of this. Um, I don't know if you have more time for our project to see what we have done or things like that. Yeah. Uh, but at least really thank you a lot because it was really interesting this part about data in Vancouver. And uh, I think all of us wish that we uh, we had you before on an interview because <laughs> we really like yeah. passed a lot of time to find data on it. So. But well, Karim can maybe continue about uh, the project. And uh, yeah, sorry. Um, so we have some questions that we uh, try to address uh, in our projects. And what, one of them is uh, density uh, and more um, and quite specifically the population density. And so I would just want to ask you, um, what do you think about densify in Vancouver? Like it, it is already... Uh, like uh, like you said, ha uh, having a uh, housing crisis. Uh, what about like uh, this this crisis, but multiplying it by twenty, for example? Um, do you think the city can ha handle uh, such a transformation, um, like infrastructure wise uh, and planning wise? Yeah. So let's see. Um... I think the short answer is yes. Okay. Um, mm. I, if I think of city more as Metro Vancouver as a region, right? This it's mm. Vancouver is kind of balkanized. So the city itself is just a small part of this bigger region. If you think about the central part of Vancouver, I would add in Burnaby to the east, mm. uh, Richmond to the south, maybe North Vancouver, this, at least the city um, to the north. And so those are things that, that really are part of the central region um, of it, and then you get more into um, outlying parts that um, still play a role in, in growth. If you look at um, Surrey, um, it's a sort of a big part that's growing very fast right now, faster than sort of the rest of the region. Yeah. So um, it, it's a large geographic region once you think of about Metro Vancouver overall, and there's a lot of opportunity. So I think there's a, um, there is a, an image uh, drawn by Arthur Erickson, and he's an architect, a Vancouver-based architect, who's um, built, you know, holds some importance, I think, to, to Vancouver and some of the older buildings here. And he is at some point drawn this picture of a vision, I think, of 10 million people in Vancouver. And it's, um, you know, it was just a, a rendering or something. So I don't think 10 million people in Vancouver, um, people have thought about this before. Um, they, um, I think it's completely reasonable to think that this will actually happen. What will it look like? Um, well, we can't have single family homes in walking distance to downtown. I think that's, that's very clear. Um, we might have some, you know, if I think of Tokyo, you know, I can think of one single family home and walking distance to, um, to the city center and uh, the emperor lives there. It's the Imperial Palace. Um, so you kind of get places like this, right? But it's, um, you know, you can't mandate them like we do here where nothing else is allowed to be built there. Um, if I think, I mean, I grew up in Germany. So, um, my ideas of what cities are is quite different, I think, from a lot of people in North America. And there's definitely a values question there. 
right? So a lot of people here feel like maybe we shouldn't densify the same way. We should just keep things the way we have and what we're used to. But of course, the consequences are is that you exclude people. You exclude people from neighborhoods because it becomes quite exclusive and expensive. You exclude people from the whole region. You exclude people from opportunity. And um, I don't think that's a good strategy. So um, I think the trade-off there will definitely have to be, we have to become more inclusive in those things. So if I think about what would it look like, um, a lot of it, you know, like the typical European four to six story building should be pretty much allowed everywhere. It might not, you know, in the outerlying regions, it might actually not happen because it might not make that much sense. And you get that too in Europe, where in certain parts, you just get more of a single family character in outerlying regions. Like if I think of Germany, the zoning law, we don't have this kind of zoning. You can kind of always build a small apartment building. Okay. But you still get areas which is dominated on, on sort of the outskirts, which is dominated by a different form. Maybe you every now and then you get one apartment building, but it's just... Um, you know, the economics just say that, okay, this is a part where we have these more single family characters, but in Vancouver, especially in the central areas, that just does not make any sense. And our current mm. uh, prices tell us that, right? I mean, mm. the prices, I always think of this, if, if the lot is $2 million, right? And then somebody comes in and tears it down and then the land kind of looks up and says, oh, okay, the house is gone please put something worthy on me, something worthy of my $2 million. And then they just put another house there and the land is like, oh no. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah, so the, the city has to densify. We will have to have towers too. I don't think there's anything yeah. in particular wrong with towers. Um, one thing that's great about Vancouver is we have some innovative technology like cross laminated timber that is happening more and more. I have a building not far away from me here, just um, a couple minute walk. That is, I think, 16 story cross laminated timber, uh, which is great. It's a great way to build density that looks really nice, um, has a great quality build to it that is comparable to being in a concrete building in terms of just rigidity and, and noise insulation and, uh, and it's low carbon. That's great. These things and they get can get built in really fast time, right? They get prefabricated panels off-site. Mm. They come in. It's one story a day, in which these buildings grow. You just put up the pillars, plop down another floor. Put up the pillars, plop down another floor. It's it's amazing, and it's great build quality. So so those are things that we can do and we should do more of um, as we go. And I'm, I'm really hoping, I'm looking forward to, to a city that welcomes a lot more people. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, it took quite a bit, quite a bit of time. Uh, we thank yeah. you a lot for your time. Thank you very much. And yeah, thank you for, so much. Yeah, for all the work you have done because uh, like your maps are great. Uh, it was like very, an honor to work, to look at them 